Justice, may it please the court. I'm Giancarlo Conoparo. I'm Zach Smith. And welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. Welcome back to another episode of SCOTUS 101. I hope everyone had a very Merry Christmas and a very Happy New Year. GC, how was your break? It was great, Zach, but the court is back, and so we are too. Indeed we are. GC, did the court issue any orders of note since our last episode? It did. Uh, since our last episode, the court granted certiorari in several cases, none of which are what you call high profile. So I'll summarize a few of them uh, briefly right now. Uh, one of them will decide whether a criminal defendant must be freed if the government brings its prosecution in the wrong venue. Another will decide whether a co-criminal defendant's out-of-court confession may be admitted at trial. Another will decide whether plaintiffs who allege that a company's securities registrations are misleading have to own shares registered under the allegedly misleading statement. And finally, another case will decide whether a law that makes it a crime to encourage or induce illegal immigration for commercial or private gain violates the First Amendment. The court also began hearing oral arguments again this week. GC, can you tell us about a few of those cases, too? Sure thing. First up this week was In Re Grand Jury. Uh, this is a legal ethics case, which we don't get very many of, mm. and it raises a fundamental issue about the attorney-client privilege. As you probably know, the attorney-client privilege prohibits the disclosure of communications between a lawyer and his client that solicit and give legal advice. It does not, however, protect communications between a lawyer and his client soliciting or giving non-legal advice. So what happens if communication does both? The current test is called the primary purpose test, and it asks if legal advice was the client's primary purpose for communicating with the lawyer. The petitioner here, a law firm whose identity has been kept secret, is asking the court to adopt a new test that requires only that the legal advice be a significant purpose, even if non-legal advice predominates. The government says the old test is just fine. Now, if you, like me, uh, hear primary purpose and significant purpose and think, well, that could be really confusing when you have a pretty even <laughs> mix of both types of advice, then uh, you are in the same boat as the justices who really struggled with uh, sort of what we might call marginal cases during oral argument. Mm. What else do we have this week, GC? We also have Ohio Adjutant General's Department versus the Federal Labor Relations Authority. This case will decide whether the Civil Service Reform Act allows the FLRA to regulate the labor practices of state militias. Now, the Civil Service Reform Act gives the FLRA the power to regulate the labor practices of federal executive agencies. That's the statutory term. Now, state militias are, of course, not federal agencies, but some members of the National Guard have what's commonly called a dual status. That is, some of their duties are for the state, some are for the federal government, and when they are working on duties for the federal government, they are technically federal employees. The FLRA claims that because they are sometimes federal employees, it can enforce collective bargaining agreements against the state militia. Ohio, of course, says no. The state militia is a state entity. And as a matter of the statutory text, Ohio is pretty clearly right. The Guard does not fit under the statute's definition of a federal executive agency. Uh, but uh, the federal government uh, hangs its hat on the fact that 
Uh, they are sometimes federal employees and so should fall under its jurisdiction. The court also heard two other cases that are worth briefly mentioning. The court heard arguments in Glacier Northwest versus International Brotherhood of Teamsters. Now, Glacier Northwest is a company in the Pacific Northwest that mixes and then delivers concrete to its customers in Washington State via ready-mix concrete trucks. In August of 2017, the union, representing many of Glacier's drivers, commenced a sudden work stoppage after prior bargaining negotiations between the parties broke down. Because concrete shipments must be delivered hastily so that the concrete does not harden and become ruined or ruin the truck that it's being shipped in, this stoppage resulted in the destruction of every batch of concrete that was supposed to be sent during that shift. The delivery trucks would also have been ruined, but for the intervention of employees not participating in the work stoppage. Labeling this as an act of intentional sabotage, Glacier subsequently sued the union under Washington State's law for tortious destruction of property. The union moved to dismiss the complaint, arguing that state law tort claims for the destruction of property conducted in the course of a lawful work stoppage are preempted by the National Labor Relations Act. The Washington Supreme Court ultimately agreed and dismissed Glacier's state law claims. Glacier, however, sought certiorari before the U.S. Supreme Court, which obviously granted review and will decide whether the National Labor Relations Act impliedly preempts a state tort claim against a union for intentionally destroying an employer's property during the course of a labor dispute. Lastly, the court heard oral arguments this week in Financial Oversight Board versus CPI. Uh, This case involves a very interesting sovereign immunity issue. Now, you may remember several years ago in response to Puerto Rico's financial crisis and the Supreme Court's decision that the island could not declare bankruptcy, Congress enacted a new statute that created a financial oversight board with broad authority to manage the territory's finances. Many of the board's actions have been controversial, and as a result, Centro, a media nonprofit on the island, filed public records requests for information related to the board's decisions. Puerto Rico's constitution contains a provision that allows for such requests, which are similar to Federal Freedom of Information Act requests, but the board refused to turn over the requested documents. So, Centro filed a lawsuit in federal court seeking those documents. Now, Centro filed in federal court because Congress required that most suits against the board be brought there instead of in Puerto Rico's local courts. The board claims that it has sovereign immunity from suit as a governmental entity. The First Circuit Court of Appeals disagreed, though, and the Supreme Court has agreed to hear the case. What's interesting is that most decisions involving sovereign immunity or sovereign immunity disputes involve a state. Puerto Rico is not a state, though, and is a territory, which means it's arguably without the same inherent sovereign immunity protections enjoyed by the states. This distinction will likely play a major, if not determinative, role in the justice's ultimate decision in this case. Boy, that is really fascinating. I wonder, sort of makes you think with all the attention on Puerto Rico and its sovereign powers or lack thereof, if we won't see some sort of big move in terms of like Puerto Rican sovereignty or statehood uh, in the next few years. Well, it's certainly something that's come up in Congress recently, uh, but in terms of sovereign immunity, you know, this is a very uh, interesting issue, and it'll be interesting to see how the justices ultimately decide it. Next up, our interview for this week with John Bash, which will play right after this.
Want the inside scoop on what's happening here at the Heritage Foundation? Check out Heard at Heritage, an all-new show replacing the Heritage Events podcast. It'll feature cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement and, of course, the Heritage Foundation's premier events and programming. Brought straight to you. Check it out at heritage.org slash podcasts. We're pleased to be joined today by John Bash, who currently works as a partner at Quinn Emanuel. John, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. Of course. Glad to have you here. Now, before we dive into your legal career, John, I like to ask my guests, why did you want to become a lawyer? I wish I had a really thoughtful explanation for that that showed some <laughs> deliberative process, but Really, I, I mean, I did well in college, and I didn't have any idea about what I wanted to do. Mm. And the most logical thing seemed to be to go to law school because uh, it seemed like a degree you could do a lot of stuff with. I didn't know I was going to be a law firm partner or a U.S. attorney or any of that thing. I thought maybe I would go into something non-legal afterwards. Um, but really, one thing led to another. I got a clerkship with then-Judge Kavanaugh, and I, I just kind of proceeded down the appellate law path. But uh, there was not much thinking in it. My father is a military officer. And my mother is an accountant. I do have an uncle who is an extremely successful plaintiff side lawyer. Um, mm. So maybe that was a model subconsciously. Uh, but no, I didn't. I didn't put a whole lot of thought into it. I just kind of proceeded down the domino path. Interesting. Now I know you attended Harvard for undergrad. What was your undergrad degree in, John? History and literature. So actually, at Harvard. The history and literature, what they call a concentration, actually predates the rest of the concentrations. Back when Harvard was just a generalist uh, curriculum, mm -hmm. you could do a special thing for history and literature. So, But that's lasted as one of the many concentrations now when there's hundreds or at least dozens. And um, that's what I did, and my focus was early modern Europe. So it was mm. 1300 to 1750 in Europe. Oh, very interesting. Now, I know after you attended Harvard for undergrad, you continued your education there, attending Harvard Law School. What was that experience like attending uh, HLS? I loved Harvard Law School, actually. Um, as a conservative, I thought it was a great place to be, and I take it that that may have changed recently. Um, but Harvard College, I had a lot of great memories of, but it was pretty crazy on the political spectrum. Um, even classes, the kind of classes I took, which were not focused on, on modern, the modern day, uh, was heavily influenced by, for example, Marxist um, views of history, Marxist views of literature. Harvard Law School, um, Justice Kagan, then Dean Kagan, she wasn't justice yet, took over about halfway through. And I guess folks might think that meant it became a more liberal place because she's sort of a political figure. She had worked in the Clinton White House, but actually it was just the opposite. She brought in conservative professors um, like Jack Goldsmith and Adrian Vermeule. Um, she was uh, engaged with the Federalist Society. Um, mm -hmm. She was kind of open to different views. And I thought the vast majority of my professors, and, and this may just be a characteristic of lawyers and law professors generally, liked open debate um, and encouraged debate. And it, it, I didn't find it a stifling place at all in terms of being able to express your views. I had a lot of progressive friends, and I did not feel ostracized in any way. I take it things have changed on campus um, since I graduated back in 06, but um, I thought it was a wonderful place, and I had a great experience there. Excellent. Now, you mentioned your clerkship uh, just a few minutes ago, and I know after you graduated, you clerked for then-Judge Brett Kavanaugh on the D.C. Circuit. How did that opportunity come about? 
So it was interesting. He was confirmed after, or right around the time I graduated law school. I had originally been hired by a different judge um, who was, he, he was prominent in the legal conservative world before, but now he's kind of prominent nationally, Michael Ludig, mm, who at the sure. time was the big, what, what they called feeder judge. Um, he would send virtually all of his clerks to clerk for Justice Scalia or Justice Thomas or Chief Justice Rehnquist or Justice Kennedy. And so I was hired by him at the beginning of my last year of law school, which is the normal time when people get hired for clerkships. Sure. Uh, but then he resigned. Um, I remember walking out of a, probably the hardest test I took in law school, the tax, and a, had a bunch of emails uh, telling, uh, feeling sorry for me that my judge had just resigned. Um, but he called me immediately and let me know that um, it looked like the Senate was probably going to confirm this guy Kavanaugh. Uh, for the D.C. Circuit, and he felt pretty good that I would have a shot at getting hired by him. And mm -hmm. so as soon as Judge uh, Kavanaugh was confirmed, he uh, interviewed uh, me and one of my, the other Ludig clerks who had also been hired by Judge Ludig and offered us the job. And so I ended up being Judge Kavanaugh's, one of his first four clerks, um, which oh, was wow. neat. Um, at the time, he was my age now, I think, 41. And he was, he was the youngest federal judge, federal appellate judge in the country until six months later when just Judge Gorsuch was confirmed. Mm. Um, so it was neat. I think occasionally the, the guards of the court would mistake him for a clerk. And, um, <laughs> you know, I think there's no experience like getting a judge started, especially on that prominent of a court and especially someone who went on to be on the Supreme Court. So that was it was a great experience. It was a lot of fun. Are there any particular memories or special memories from your time uh, helping Judge Kavanaugh get started that stand out to you? Gosh, I mean, you know, setting up the fax machine, setting up the phone <laughs> machines, I mean, stuff like that that you don't normally do in a clerkship. Sure. Um, Very traumatic Cir experiences, I, I can imagine. <laughs> yeah. Um, and the, the D.C. Circuit is an interesting place compared to other federal appellate clerkships because all of the judges are in the same building at all times. So other clerkships, you often only see a lot of the other clerks during sittings when you travel to New right. Orleans or Boston, or wherever the sittings are. But um, on the D.C. Circuit, everybody's always in the same courtroom. So I got to know a lot of the clerks very well. Many of them I'd gone to law school with. Um, a number, I think, at least 10 of them went on to clerk the next year with me on the Supreme Court. Wow. And a bunch of them ended up working with me um, in various capacities in my career, including um, in the SG's office at DOJ. So um, got to be very tight with a lot of clerks there. Uh, that was a great experience about it. Um, judge Kavanaugh was the most junior judge, unless there was a senior judge on the panel, because senior judges lose their seniority, oddly enough. Um, sure. Although in practice, a senior judge would often get the juicy opinion from that sitting. So what that meant, Judge Kavanaugh often got the most mundane opinions um, for mm. the sitting. Uh, but I liked that because I actually liked doing uh, what is a st staple of D.C. Circuit work, um, which is cases involving the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, um, mm. which is an agency not a lot of Americans pay super attention to, but it's really important. It governs uh, the interstate electricity and natural gas system. And there's just a ton of cases based on they didn't approve this or that for a pipeline or a local utility or whatever. And so D.C. Circuit, it's kind of a running joke of the D.C. Circuit that no one wants to be on the FERC cases. Uh, <laughs> but I really, I really enjoyed them, and we got to write some pretty big ones that are still cited. Um, so... I, that was good. We definitely, we, at least I didn't have any kind of huge constitutional cases or anything like that, but um, it was interesting learning from him. He's a perfectionist. He, he had clerked for Judge Kaczynski, who's also a perfectionist. And although 
Judge Kavanaugh, now Justice Kavanaugh, has a very, very different personality, probably polar opposite of Judge Kaczynski on, on a personal level. He had some of his professional practices, for example, going through lots and lots of drafts of opinions, um, lots mm-hmm. of edits. It wasn't a quick process. He wanted to get it right. Um, so I learned a lot there and um, just kind of through osmosis about how to, how, to, how to get legal writing and legal opinion and legal thinking right. Excellent. Now, I know your wife, Zena, was a year behind you at Harvard Law School and that she also clerked for Judge Kavanaugh. I'm curious, uh, did you guys meet in law school or did you meet while you were clerking for Judge Kavanaugh? Actually, even before that, we met in college. Uh, we were in the same house in, at Harvard College. Uh, she was hmm. a year, six months younger than me, but a year behind me in college. And we started dating my senior year of college, although we had been, been friends for a few years before that. Um, so, yeah, and then she ended up going to Harvard Law as well. And she clerked for Kavanaugh. We got engaged right before I started my clerkship, and then we got married um, between my clerkship and her clerkship. So we were actually already married by the time she was clerking. Oh, um, interesting. So now, did she clerk uh, the year after you did for Judge Kavanaugh? She did. She did. Excellent. Excellent. Now, you mentioned after uh, you clerked for then-Judge Kavanaugh, you continued clerking at the Supreme Court. And I know you clerked for Justice Scalia. What was that experience like? I mean, th- that was one of the most incredible experiences of my professional life, certainly. I mean, Justice Scalia, by that point, was something of an historical figure. I mean, he was one of the most, you know, um, anthologized justices in case books on constitutional law and other areas. He was an icon of the conservative movement. He was somebody who wrote in such a unique voice that you sort of felt like you already knew him um, going into the clerkship. So it, it is... Um, Certainly a sort of awesome experience to have this real person that you're now going to work with who you've read so much of and been influenced by. Um, so, yeah, I was obviously nervous going into that. Um, sure. But the thing that struck me, and I've said this on a number of occasions, but the thing that struck me about him actually working with him was despite his rhetoric and his pointed questions and pointed dissents and so forth, he was actually extraordinarily intellectually humble. Um, meaning that he could be persuaded and he liked people to try to persuade him. And so even when he came into a case with a particular instinct on how it should go, if the clerk had the opposite instinct, he wanted to debate even this clerk who was a year out of law school um, and knew nothing. Uh, he, he liked that process and he, he did a lot of public speaking events where he talked to law students or non-lawyers and he liked getting challenging questions and engaging on those and um, having his mind engaged. And that's so different than a lot of public figures who sure. have a certain arrogance about their abilities, who either incapable or do not desire to engage with people on the substance of arguments. He was the opposite of that. So that was incredible. I also learned a lot about um, how to write, how to do great legal writing. His process was very different than Judge Kavanaugh's. I, I would kind of call it to myself, control alt Scalia, um, because (laughs) even if you submitted an opinion draft to him that was pretty much what he wanted structurally and substantively, had all the right arguments and was well done, he would just turn it around in like a day or two, if it wasn't too long, and he would actually use red lines, um, which I always found kind of incredible because he was, you know, late 60s at that point had not come up even with computers, let alone track (laughs) changes. Sure. And I, I remember thinking when I went to a law firm 
After that, I'd have some senior associate, like late 20s, early 30s, giving me chicken scratch to try to like decipher with a magnifying glass to in- <laughs> input his changes. <laughs> Meanwhile, Justice Scalia, this eminent figure in the history of American law, was doing track changes. So all I had to do was review them, make sure I didn't think there was a problem, and hit accept. Um, but anyway, he, he was very fast, but it came out just in his voice. And uh, I thought that was unbelievable, the way he could take something that looked that was kind of substantively had the basic structure there, but just turn it into his voice. Um, so that was incredible. And then I, I was also just fortunate that I got to have some really big opinions um, to work on. And we're not allowed to say most of the opinions we worked on. There's a code sure. of confidentiality, but he would always sign one opinion per term. Uh, you know, they put out these booklets with the opinions. So he would sign one opinion per term for each clerk, um, whichever one the clerk wanted. And that, that's the one the clerk could say that he or she worked on. And for me, he actually signed two. And the reason he signed two is we had two opinions the last day of the term. There were three opinions the last day, and we had two of them. And so it was a crazy mad scramble because last day of the term means the opinion's big, means that the justices are going back and forth sure. on the dissents right up until the deadline. Um, and so it's a very stressful period. I didn't even, there's a lot of different end of the term social activities. I didn't go to any of those because uh, I was working on these opinions. And um, one of them was actually a FERC case. We were talking about FERC earlier. No one outside of FERC cares about it, but it was sort of a big FERC case. Um, the other one, though, was D- District of Columbia versus Heller, mm-hmm. which was the opinion that um, for the first time recognized an individual right under the Second Amendment to own a firearm, in, in that case, a, a handgun in the home. Right. And, um, it's funny, that was, for me, it, it was sort of um, luck the way I got it, the way it was luck, the way the Chicago Bulls got Michael Jordan. Um, <laughs> we we had a, a draft every month um, for which cases you wanted to work on. You wouldn't know necessarily that that would be the case, that the justice would be assigned an opinion. Sure. Um, and in March of 2008, Heller was up there, and I had the second overall pick that month. But my co-clerk, thinking that, no way the Chief Justice would assign Heller to Scalia versus keeping it for himself, picked a different case called Munaf, which was an, an interesting case about Iraqi detainees. And I was like, I'm taking Heller. I don't care if we're going to do the opinion or not. I just want to work on the case. Sure. And then the Chief Justice, um, in something that I think was very touching to Justice Scalia, uh, assigned him Heller. And uh, mm. I, I, it was a really great thing for the Chief Justice to do because Heller was in many ways the culmination of what Justice Scalia was trying to do, which is to um, interpret the Constitution according to the original understanding. Here was an important constitutional provision that really had not been interpreted before by the court. So it's, it's a fresh slate. You don't have to deal with precedent. Really, there were a couple of precedents that we did have to deal with, but they weren't, in our view at least, super on point. Um, and so uh, it, uh, that was incredible. So obviously working on Heller um, was definitely one of the highlights of my career and um, something I'll obviously always remember. That's fascinating, John. That's, that's absolutely fascinating. Now, after you finished your clerkship uh, with Justice Scalia, I know you briefly worked in private practice and then moved over to the Solicitor General's office. How did that move uh, into government service come about? So, um, you know, the SG's job is a really coveted job for appellate lawyers. Uh, there's, a, there's 21 people who work in that office, uh, a solicitor general who's a political appointee confirmed by the Senate. In my case, it was Obama's solicitor general, Don Verrilli. Uh, one political appointee deputy. Three career deputies who really kind of managed the office. And at the time, all three of them had been there for at least 20 years. 
Uh, and then 16 assistants, which is the, the, the really coveted job that a lot of people want. Um, sure. It's coveted because you're doing pretty much mostly Supreme Court work. Um, you also work on whether the government should appeal cases in lower courts. And you get to argue two or three cases a year in the Supreme Court, which is an enormous no- number by private practice standards. Even the top right. advocates rarely argue that frequently in the court. Maybe Paul Clement does, but very few others do. And so it's, it's kind of a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Two people had left, uh, two, one of whom I knew well. And um, so I just went there and interviewed. I had really good recommendations from Gibson Dunn, including Ted Olson, who was a former Solicitor General, and Tom Hungar, who was a former deputy. Um, and, you know, I, there were a lot of good people who applied for it, I'm sure. Uh, but I, I, they hired me. I don't know. I, I, I was later <laughs> part of the hiring process, so I know that we just got a ton of good candidates and it was a little bit of a crapshoot on who to hire. Um, so I really lucked out. And um, I'm really fortunate, you know, even though he's a different political party than me, that I got to work for Don Verrilli. And he's just, um, he's just a really honest and candid and straightforward person. Um, and Solicitor General is a tough position because oftentimes you're between uh, political people who are pushing you one way and your duty to the court to be consistent and candid about what the precedents say and so forth. And that can be a tricky thing. Every SG has has come to a point, some point where they had to give in to the political side of things, but generally they try to toe the line on consistency and in the interests of the government in a neutral sense. Um, and I think he did that job fantastically. And in fact, one one time Justice Scalia pulled me aside, and, and I can't remember exactly the words he used, but he he talked about how much the court appreciated Don and how much trust they had in him, even though Justice Scalia was on the opposite side of Don in so many issues. Right. Um, so, right. you know, that that's a really important tradition to uphold. And, I, you know, I think the Trump Solicitor General has also upheld that. Noel Francisco was the main one. Um, so, and, and I think Elizabeth Freelogger, who's a friend now, who's the Biden Solicitor General, is doing a good job as well. But um, it, it, I was really an honor to get to work um, for Don Verrilli there and, and to appear before the court. Excellent. Now, during your time at the SG's office, I know you argued 10 cases before the court. Did any cases or particular moments from argument stand out to you? The case that stands out most in my mind is a case called Utah versus Streif, and that's for a couple of reasons. Um, one was probably one of the two most important cases I argued. It was about the exclusionary rule, which is the principle that if the government conducts an illegal search or seizure, the, the evidence from that search or seizure is excluded in any trial of the person um, for a crime right. uh, because it was an illegal search. In this case, what happened was the uh, a person had been illegally stopped. Uh, the police had no cause to stop him at all and pat him down, but during the course of the stop, they got his name and ran a background check and found that he had an outstanding warrant for his arrest. And they arrested him on the warrant, which is which is lawful. Uh, and then they searched him incident to that arrest, which is a normal thing to do and is typically lawful. And the question was, is that search tainted? And so the evidence should be excluded because the initial stop was illegal before they knew about the warrant. And we said no. We say that, that that's too tenuous of a connection. And the court agreed with us. And what, but what was most notable to me about the case was this was, I argued it the first argument sitting after Justice Scalia um, passed away. Mm. And so uh, there was black bunting over his, um, where he, over the seat he had on the bench. Right. And my wife actually, you know, most people that argue multiple times in the court ultimately get one of these drawings done that they can hang up in their office. 
And before he had died, my wife had scheduled the drawing for that day. And so my drawing of me arguing at the court has the black bunting over his seat. Um, and it was the second argument of that day. Uh, but we ended up winning, which once you knew he passed away, you probably would have thought it would be a 4-4 case. And so the lower court decision would stand. But actually, um, we ended up getting Justice Breyer to come over to the, the quote-unquote conservative side, or at least the pro-law enforcement side in that case. Um, mm -hmm. So we ended up winning. So that's the most memorable case I had. Um, I said it's probably the second most important. I had an earlier one. My second argument was about the standard for aiding and abetting under federal law, which it's one of those things. You're, you're always surprised when you're an appellate lawyer how seemingly basic stuff that you figured there'd be an answer with a case from like 1800 on doesn't <laughs> right. actually have a clear answer. And yeah. exactly the, the, the act requirement, what you have to do, and the intent requirement, what you have to think or intend for aiding and abetting just generally was actually not that clear. There was some old learned hand formulation that people would use and you'd read it and you'd be like, that sounds good, but actually I have no clue how to operationalize that or what that's supposed to mean. Mm. Um, so uh, that was probably the it was a case called Rosemont, but that was probably the most important case I argued personally. Oh, excellent. Now, in 2017, you left the SG's office and you became a special assistant and an associate counsel to President Trump. How did that move come about and what did you do in that position, John? Uh, so I, I thought about um, going actually to be just a state prosecutor um, from the SG's office in 2016. Um, I, you know, I wasn't really expecting the Republican nominee to win um, that year. Uh, sure. But when he did win, Don McGahn called me up and uh, asked if I would like to be to work for him in the White House Counsel's office. And I had had the idea, I think probably the morning after the election, that maybe I'd go for U.S. attorney. It was a little bit unorthodox, but I had worked in DOJ for a number of years on criminal and national security work, although I had not been a federal prosecutor. So right. um, I thought maybe a long shot, maybe not, but I, I'd go for U.S. attorney in either the southern or western districts of Texas, and I'd you know, go through that process, and I figured it, while I'm doing that, uh, I think it makes sense to go to the White House, and obviously the White House is going to be an important decision maker in addition to the senators on that selection. So um, so I, I went and I was one of many associate counsels in the White in a, what was by historical standards a big White House counsel's office. I primarily worked with Don and Greg Katzis, who was the deputy White House counsel and who's now a D.C. Circuit judge sure. on, I would say, the abstract legal issues, constitutional issues that come up and um liaising with DOJ on issues of interest to the White House. So, for example, um, litigation involving executive order orders or other White House actions. Mm. Um, I also, although there were other folks leading up the judge search and, and the logistics of that and dealing with the Senate and so forth, um, I would be brought in for the circuit interviews. So I grilled people extremely hard in the interviews. Um, I think I made a lot of, I hope not enemies, but people that were pretty <laughs> pissed at me right afterwards. Um, I hope they know that I treated everybody equally and didn't play favorites and um, asked tough questions to everybody. But, you know, my view was, and th these weren't really political questions. It wasn't like, tell me how you'd rule on some controversial issue. It was right. more just how you think. And I wanted folks that could hold their own against, you know, people, very smart judges, Judge Bear's own on the Ninth Circuit. Um, you know, uh, um, the the really really intelligent uh, judges that President Obama appointed to the DC Circuit. Uh, we sure. needed people who could hold their own there, and I wanted to make sure people were up to the task. And I asked very hard questions. And my view was, if you want a lifetime appointment, I think you can be grilled for an hour 
on hard questions to get a lifetime appointment to something extraordinarily powerful and prestigious. So um, I did that. That was a fun part of the job. Um, but no, most of it was dealing with litigation involving DOJ and executive orders and stuff like that. Um, so that's what I worked on. It was pretty wild. I'm sure any White House is wild, especially the first year. But, you know, there was a there was a massive push the first couple months to get out a ton of executive orders, which right. um, the ones that did get out immediately provoked lawsuits and injunctions and uh, challenging legal issues that, that DOJ had to deal with and they, we were working with them on. So um, it was a pretty it, it was certainly a tumultuous period compared to other jobs I've had. Now, you were ultimately successful in becoming a U.S. attorney. You became the U.S. attorney for the Western District of Texas. Uh, how did that come about, and how did that compare to your previous work in you know, what's perceived to kind of be the, the rarefied appellate world of the SG's office? Sure. Um, so there's a process in Texas uh, via a committee that Senator Cornyn and Senator Cruz have set up, which is a, it's a bipartisan committee, probably leans right, but it's bipartisan and it's prominent lawyers in Texas, and they interview candidates for U.S. attorney, I think for judges, and for marshal. So I interviewed with that committee, and I said I was interested in both Western and Southern. Uh, you know, my family originally is from El Paso, and I lived there when I was young, so that was mm -hmm. my connection to Western. Southern, um, my wife is from McAllen, and we spent a lot of time down there, and that's in the Southern Got District. It. So I certainly had less of a connection than people who are living there currently, as opposed to D.C., but I thought a, a sufficient connection to make me a plausible candidate for the job. And so I interviewed with the committee. Uh, my understanding is they typically recommend three people to the senators, and I was one of the three for Western. Uh, then I interviewed with Senator Cornyn and Senator Cruz, both of whom I knew Senator Cruz a little better. My wife had worked in different capacities for, for both of them. Um, and so I interviewed with them. And um, those went well. They were straightforward interviews, substantive, uh, not just, you know, not just... Um, personality stuff. Both of them are very substantive, especially Senator Cruz. Uh, then I interviewed with Attorney General Sessions and Deputy Attorney General Rosenstein. That was brief. Uh, it's mostly about prosecutorial priorities and so forth, I think. Sure. Um, yeah, I'm trying to remember. I think I, I had written something in college that I, I disclosed on my, on my resume, kind of anti-death penalty. And mm -hmm. <laughs> Rosenstein asked me if I could enforce the death penalty, and I said I could. Uh, which I'd, I'd done a lot of death penalty cases in the SG's office, so I obviously had, had no issue with doing that. Um, and then, the you know, you fill out some forms, background check type stuff, Senate questionnaire stuff. Um, and then the president nominated me in, I think, September 11th, actually, 2017. I got out of committee in October, um, which was pretty straightforward, actually, because uh, there's no hearing for U.S. attorneys. It's just on papers. And then I was confirmed a couple weeks later, you know, by Mitch McConnell walking into an empty room and reading a bunch of numbers and no one objecting. <laughs> so uh, it, it wasn't really a dramatic process. And I started like three weeks later. Um, so that, that was the process. Uh, you know, I was fortunate. I, I had an unusual background, but I thought I was well enough suited. I mean, I certainly had gaps in my knowledge. I had not prosecuted an individual case. But I think compared to most people coming in as a new U.S. attorney, I had a better knowledge of substantive criminal law, the national security, both law and operations of the department, and of course, everything going on at Maine Justice, because I would worked there for four or five years. So um, I think I've brought a different set of experiences and skills to the table than a typical U.S. attorney, who's either a former AUSA or sometimes like a state, you know, elected state prosecutor or something like that. Right. 
Are there any special memories or accomplishments that stand out from your time as U.S. attorney? So I, I think most U.S. attorneys would say, and I'd agree, that the biggest accomplishment was the hiring. Uh, so I hired like 70 prosecutors when I was prosecutors and civil attorneys when I was there. Uh, we, have, we, have one of the, we had one of the biggest districts in the country. It's 600 miles of border, seven offices, including big cities like Austin and San Antonio. Sure. Um, and so I really tried to depart from the traditional model in a lot of regional U.S. attorney's offices, including um, Western Texas, which was to take an experienced state prosecutor as your, your next AUSA. Um, you know, I, I, got, I, I valued experience a little bit less and personal qualities, um, whether that was academic accomplishments or just um, perseverance in the face of personal challenges. Like I remember we hired a, a not too experienced state prosecutor from another area of Texas, but she had put herself through law school as a single mother. And I thought that was um, something that showed a lot of uh, a great work ethic and concentration and ability to manage time. Um, we also got, you know, we got a Supreme Court clerk in Austin, one of the uh, Chief Ju- Kavanaugh and Chief Justice clerk in Austin. So I tried to change the hiring practices a little bit, and I thought we got a good group. You know, you're never 100 percent, but um, we had a couple of people who didn't work out. But for the most part, we got really, really good people. Um, so that's one. You know, the biggest challenge, well, the biggest challenge in, a, in an individual prosecution I faced was the El Paso Walmart massacre, um, mm. which you may remember. August 3rd, 2019. I flew into El Paso the night of that, and without going into sensitive law enforcement details, there were difficult decisions to be made and difficult conversations. Um, And then we had to kind of do a press conference the next morning explaining to the public and most especially to the victims and their families what the plan was, what had happened, what's going on. And um, that was tough. And I, I called the attorney general that morning and you know, said, I would like to say the death penalty is on the table, even though ultimately that will be a decision for him uh, under DOJ policy. Right. And I'd like to say that this is domestic terrorism because there's a statutory definition of domestic terrorism. And I think this clearly meets it, or at least the, the facts in the record now, including the manifesto um, saying that the shooter was targeting people because of their ethnic background. Mm-hmm. And he was good on both of those things, which I was surprised on the domestic terrorism because there had been a traditional reluctance at DOJ for reasons I don't totally understand to call things domestic terrorism. And I said, no, I think, I think the public needs to hear that this is domestic terrorism because, um, people want to know we're treating ethnic violence directed at, um, people of Mexican or Hispanic nationality and Mexican citizens, actually, in this case, the same way we treat other acts of terrorism. And so made that announcement, called it domestic terrorism. Um, and then we proceeded to indict the case. There's a, even though it's in some ways an obvious case, like, you know, uh, it's not a whodunit. Um, right. It's, it's something that's sprawling is very challenging in a lot of ways. It's still pending, so I'm not going to say too much about it. Um, but we indicted the case on 100 counts of basically mm-hmm. hate crimes and um, murdering someone with a firearm. Uh, and probably the single hardest thing I had to do in that was speak to the victims and families, which, as you said, I'm an appellate lawyer. Uh, that's, you know, that sort of person-to-person discussion, explanation for someone who's going through something unimaginable. It's not something that comes naturally to me. Uh, Mm. You know, but I found being just straightforward and candid about what's going on and the facts um, worked best. People don't want, they're not looking to the U.S. attorney for personal, um, personal issues. They want straightforward answers on what's going to happen. Uh, So, um, 
but it was still a series of difficult conversations. So um, that was certainly the thing that stands out most in my mind uh, uh, during my time as U.S. attorney. Mm. Now, we're running a little bit short on time, John, but I did want to quickly ask you, what type of work are you doing now at Quinn Emanuel? Are you doing appellate work or trial work, or what is your uh, portfolio uh, right now? So Quinn Emanuel is the biggest only litigation firm in the world, I think, certainly in the country. Uh, most firms of our size are what's called full service. They do corporate transactions, tax, real estate, stuff like that. We only do litigation. And the firm has just um, an incredible collection of trial lawyers who love trying cases. And it's, I don't think I'm saying anything that most other firms wouldn't agree with. Uh, we're known as being extremely aggressive, um, wanting to go to trial. And so I'm primarily an appellate lawyer. Uh, right. And so I really liked the idea of joining a team like that, where you have just this incredible collection of litigators. Um, and so the stuff I do day to day is, of course, appeals, um, you know, both defensive and where we are the appellant, we're, we're the party that lost below. Sometimes that's because another firm lost below and they bring us in. Sure. Uh, but I also do issues in trial courts that um, relate to appellate work. So identifying the key legal issues at summary judgment or writing up the summary judgment brief. Um, I do some trial type stuff too. I did earlier, or I guess last year, a pseudo bench, three day bench trial with witnesses on a PI motion in, here in Austin and do depositions and stuff like that occasionally. Um, but most of my work is on the appellate level. And then I also represent individuals and companies facing um, investigations of different kinds, whether it's um, DOJ or Congress or state, um, especially Texas state entities. Sure. and dealing with officials on that negotiation and discussion process. Um, so that's part of what I do as well. Mm, very interesting. Well, I have a final question for you, John. It's one we ask all of our guests here on SCOTUS 101. If you could have a conversation with any Supreme Court justice, living or dead, who would it be and what would you talk about? Well, I'd like to give you some great uh, out, of the, out of left field 19th century justice, <laughs> but Honestly, I talked to Justice Scalia. Um, if I could talk to any Supreme Court justice, even though he's the justice I've I've talked to the most by far, um, mm. just because never got to have that final conversation with him. I'd love to hear his perspective, if if it's possible, in this hypothetical on all the things that happened since he died, um, both in the law and Supreme Court precedent, and in in the country more generally. Um, and he was just a wonderful, interesting person to talk to. So. I'm, of course, tempted to say John Marshall or something just for the, mm -hmm. the excitement of it. But no, I think I would talk to Justice Scalia again if I had anyone, I, I, if I had one justice I could speak to. Well, that's a very solid choice and certainly one that is uh, very understandable. Well, John, this has been a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us on the podcast here today. We'd love to have you back on the show again in the future. I'll take you up on that. Thank you for having me. All right, Zach, you've had a month-long break from trivia. Not long but enough. It, <laughs> but it's over, I'm delighted to say. Are you ready? No, but let's, uh, let's do it anyway. <laughs> All right, I'm not going to give you the uh, topic for today's trivia in advance. Instead, the topic is the answer to the first question. So, the first question is, who is the only officer of the United States who, by statute, must be learned in the law? <laughs> that would be the Solicitor General, GC. 
Well done, Zach. The Solicitor General, that is the official in charge of the government's cases before the Supreme Court, is the only official who must be learned in the law. Uh, Two interesting tidbits. Supreme Court justices, whose requirements are set only by the Constitution, do not have to be learned in the law. Uh, And another one, interestingly enough, the Attorney General used to have to be learned in the law according to the Judiciary Act of 1789. But when Congress created the Solicitor General's office, they dropped that requirement for the AG. Very interesting indeed, GC. Yes. So today's trivia is all about the Solicitor General's office. All All right. right. Let's do it. So the Solicitor General shares something in common with the Vice President of the United States that no other government official shares. What is it? I don't know, GC. What is it? Uh, That is an office in two branches of the government, one in the Department of Justice and the other at the Supreme Court. The vice president, of course, has an office close to the White House and in uh, Congress as because he serves uh, as the president of the Senate. Oh, interesting. Uh, But I'm assuming that's just by uh, courtesy or custom that the Supreme Court provides office space to the uh, to the solicitor general. You know what? That's actually a great question. I assume that's right. Uh, could be by statute, but I doubt it. Actually, I think you're right. Must be custom. Uh, interesting. All right. What you got? All right. Number three. Before there was a solicitor general, how did the federal government argue cases at the Supreme Court? Well, I'm assuming that the attorney general would argue those cases. That is correct. In the earliest days when there wasn't very much work, the attorney general would do it himself. But later on, they had a lot more work. What do you think they did then? Well, I'm assuming they would either hire someone uh, to argue the cases or maybe uh, uh, pull a lawyer from uh, one of the U.S. attorney's offices or something like that. Actually, you know, the second one makes a lot of sense, but it was the first that they went with. They would hire outside counsel to represent the federal government at the Supreme Court. Mm, Interesting. Uh, So next question, who, if you know, was the first ever Solicitor General of the United States? And bonus point, if you know which president appointed him. I do know both of these, GC. It was uh, Benjamin Bristow. That's why the Solicitor General's office currently offers a Bristow Fellowship. Well done. Uh, And I believe he was appointed uh, when the Justice Department was established, which was under, uh, I think, President Grant's administration. Very well done, Zach. Yes, indeed. Uh, Bonus trivia question. You don't don't get any points off if you get this one wrong. (laughs) Do you know why Ulysses S. Grant picked Benjamin Bristow? I don't. I don't. Tell me. So Bristow was a fierce defender of civil rights for the newly freed slaves, uh, an ardent opponent of the Ku Klux Klan, and was very eager to use the office to aid Reconstruction, which were all things that Grant, too, was very passionate about. Mm, Excellent. Final question of the day. Many former solicitors general have gone on to serve on the Supreme Court, including William Howard Taft, Robert Jackson, and Elena Kagan. Only one former Solicitor General who was nominated to the court did not get confirmed. Who was that? Well, unfortunately, uh, Robert Bork is who comes to mind. And I say unfortunately because he he got Borked, which... Yes, that is correct. Uh, Probably one of the darkest moments in Supreme Court confirmation, uh, uh, bad behavior from the Senate. But yes, he was the only Solicitor General nominated who did not get the nod. Mm, Very interesting. Well done, Zach. Well, thanks, GC. You have not a... lost your edge over the break. So. <laughs> well, it was a good start uh, to get me back into the saddle uh, doing trivia again. 
Well, thank you everyone for listening. That's all we have for today. Please be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen. And as always, we'd appreciate if you left us a five-star rating. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at SCOTUS101 and email us at SCOTUS101 at heritage.org with your questions, comments, or ideas for future shows. You've been listening to SCOTUS 101, brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. Executive produced by Giancarlo Canaparo and Zach Smith. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, visit heritage.org.